Good morning. I would like uh, Pastor Kerry, Pastor Tom, and Mike, if they can hear me in the back room, and the elders to come up, please. What I do? Nothing yet. <laughs> oh, okay, dear Tom. And we'll get Chuck up here. October is the, a Pastor Appreciation Month, and this is about the first Sunday we could get all three of the pastors together at one time. So I'm going to like to thank our pastors, Mike, Tom, and Carrie. We just ask the Lord just to bless them. And I'm just going to have Chuck, if you just pray over these guys, and then we'll give them a little card. Father, as we come before you, we do thank you that you have given us three marvelous pastors, music, children, and youth, and lead pastor. We thank you for their devotion. We thank you for their dedication. We thank you for all their hard work that they do. Help each one of us to pray for them every day and be a blessing to them as they are to us. Amen. Okay, Mike. Tom. Thank you. Thank you. Carrie, thank, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks, guys. We're going to go ahead and we're going to pray and start our worship time. And we'll begin with some worship through giving and then worship through music, worship through study of God's Word, worship through communion. And so let's just pause for a moment. It's been a busy morning already. And let's just remember who we're here for. God, we thank you. We thank you for all that you've blessed us with. Lord, you've given us life and that much more. And, and these offerings that we're about to give to you represent our love to you. Saying, God, thank you for providing everything that pertains to this life, but most importantly, your son Jesus. Lord, we thank you for your love that's never-ending and never-failing. We thank You for Your grace that has been bestowed upon us to call us children of the Most High. Lord, we thank You. May You receive these offerings, Father, as intended uh, worship response. And may these offerings be used for Your kingdom's sake, for the missionaries and the ministry, both here and abroad. And may everything that happens in this building today Make you smile. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Lord, we give you the battle. But we know that we're just, our life is full of battles, Lord. The different things that we're fighting, the different things that we try to do in our own strength. And God, we just want to acknowledge today that we can't, we can't do it in our own strength. And we ask that you would fight the battle, Lord. We ask that this morning as we praise you, as we open your word, God, that you would just Help us to understand the truth so that it would change our lives. Help us to understand, God, your truth. And help us, Lord, to fight the battle on your terms, in your way, with you as our captain, with you as our commander, Lord, with you as our victor. So, God, we just praise you. We thank you. We give you this morning. Prepare our hearts. Open our hearts to hear what you have to say. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You would open up your Bibles to Acts 18. 
as we can study as we continue our study through Luke's account of the beginnings of the early church in Acts. There was a man that was shoveling his driveway. He was shoveling the snow out of the way. And as he was shoveling, this young boy comes up with a shovel and he says, Shovel your snow, mister? And the man looked at him and he goes, I'm halfway done. And he said, well, I'll do it for $2. And he goes, why would I pay you $2 to come and shovel my snow when I'm halfway done? And he says, well, he says, that's where I make most of my money because a lot of people start, but they just don't want to finish. <laughs> Smart young man. When you think about our lives, depression and discouragement can wear you down. Often depression and discouragement it can be handled in the forefront when we're first hit with it. But when it becomes chronic, when it becomes continuous, it, it's going to wear you down to the point where you want to quit, where you want to give up. Have you ever been there? Vince Lombardi had a quote, and, and I came across it a number of years ago, and I, I really appreciate the quote. And I started sharing it with my grandson, who would get frustrated with different things pretty easy, as young boys would, whether it was school or, or soccer or whatever the thing is. He'd get, you know, you ever get a, a, they just get frustrated, and they get to the point where like, they're so frustrated they want to cry, and they start crying, and, and you want to console them. And I shared with him this quote that Lombardi said, Winners never quit. Quitters never win. Whenever he gets frustrated, I repeat that quote. And I'll say, Josh, what does Grandpa say? Winners never quit. Quitters never win. <laughs> but it is really that essence of being that, that voice from outside of the discouragement and the disappointment that will draw you back in. And we need to hear that voice. Ministry and life is going to be hard. Jesus said it would be hard. He told us it would be hard. If you thought becoming a Christian was going to make life perfect and easy, not so much. Because when you become a Christ follower, you get a target put right on the middle of your back. Satan wants to, to destroy you. Jesus knew this, and so he told his disciples in John 16, 33, These things, what things? All of the things I've spoken to you, so that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. Take courage. I've overcome the world. What is Jesus saying? That in the midst of tribulation and hardship and difficulty and all these things, you can have peace. When the world's falling down around you, you can persevere. And those that persevere will see the kingdom of God. Not just in eternity, but they'll see the kingdom of God right now. What is the kingdom of God? Divine rule. In your life right now. But you've got to persevere and you've got to look up. You think about all the tools in Satan's toolbox. Hatred, spite, jealousy, lust, greed, envy, immorality, and deception. But you want to know the tool that works the best? Discouragement. Think about the word dis 
encouragement. What does that mean? To remove the courage. And you say, well, I've been that way, but there's, I must not be a good Christian because I get discouraged or I get depressed and all these things. Hogwash. Everybody goes through times of discouragement, depression, frustration in life, as does the Apostle Paul. As we pick up in our text here in Acts 18, Paul, this is a guy who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. And he is now in Corinth on his second missionary journey. His first one, he struggled, and he got beat up a number of times and run out of every city. And now he's on his second journey, and now he's been run out of every city, and he finds himself in Corinth by himself, which is Always a dangerous place to be. And the constant rejection and feeling like a failure. God, do you really want me to do this? Did you really call me to go to be an evangelist to the Gentiles? I am not seeing great success anywhere. Maybe I should just quit. Paul is here in Corinth and trying to connect with the Jews and they want nothing to do with him. They're raising up people against him, running him out of town. And we're going to see in our text this morning how God brings encouragement to those that are discouraged. A number of different ways. So that you will not be afraid, but you'll speak up and do the things that God's called you to do. We're going to hopefully see and gain some spiritual vision to be able to see what it is that God is bringing into our lives to bring that as encouragement. You ready for the journey? Let's stand as we read through our text this morning. Acts chapter 18, 1 through 17. May God be the teacher. In Acts 18, 1, it says, After these things, after what things? After having his lunch handed to him in Athens. He left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontius, having received recently <clears throat> come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he came to them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them. And they were working for by trade. They were tent makers. And he was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade the Jews and the Greeks. But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. But when they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out the garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I'm clean. From now on, I'm going to the Gentiles. And then he left there and went to the house of a man named Titus Justus, a worshiper of God whose house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household, and many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. And the Lord said to Paul in the night by a vision, Do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking, and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. And he settled there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. But while Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him before the judgment seat, saying, 
This man persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Galileo said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrong or vicious crime, O Jews, it would be reasonable for me to put up with you. But if there are questions about words and names and your own law, look after it yourself. I'm unwilling to be a judge of these matters. And he drove them away from the judgment seat. And they all took hold of Sothenius, the leader of the synagogue, and began beating him in front of the judgment seat. But Gallio was not concerned about any of these things. May God bless the reading of his word. You can be seated. So one of the things that we see is this, and if you've picked up on it, God continued to bring encouragement when it was most needed within this. And in that, we have Paul that is leaving Athens and going up to Corinth. Now, Corinth was a city that was 50 miles west. If we can have the, the map, that'd be great. So Paul's ministry actually came up out of Antioch, and then he first went up into Cappadocia and then did all of these cities that were across here. And those of us that went to Turkey, we went and we visited these cities here in his first missionary journey. He was last going through Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, and Athens. Run out of town, out of all of these cities that were here. And he's from Athens over to Corinth in the region of Achaia. Macedonia is the northern region. This whole region is Greece. So within this, we have Macedonia with the Roman region there, Achaia here. So Paul is here in Corinth. Now, Corinth was really wiped out in 146 B.C., and it became a desolate place. And under Julius Caesar in 46 B.C. was reestablishing the place and rebuilding it up because it was going to be a good place of commerce that was in this. Corinth was an ideal city for evangelism because it was a metropolis of a city. There was a lot of people moving through. And Paul's method of evangelism was to go to big cities. He thought big. I'm going I'm to evangelize. And in his mind, if I evangelize in a big city, the church is going to be established in this. The gospel opportunities are going to be huge within all of this. But we've got to keep in mind of what was going on. And, and so Paul was evangelizing in a city that was virtually only about 100 years old from the remodel. But it also was full of idolatry. There was the goddess of Epaphrodite that had her temple on the air of Corinth, which was the hill that was above, and they had a thousand temple prostitutes that were all part of that worship. Can you imagine? And, and, and that is where you're going. Well, Paul looked at this undaunting task and said, I'm going to bring the gospel there into this place. And he had a heart for the people. And as he was moved out, we got to understand that Christianity really hadn't been preached in Corinth yet. He was breaking new ground, full of idolatry, a failing Grecian empire, and a raising Roman empire. And everywhere Paul had gone, he had been rejected and run out of town. And now he is here in Corinth by himself because he'd been run out of Athens. So what does he do? He gets into the city... And he was very low. Who do I know? I know Jews and I know tent makers. So who does he connect with? Tent makers. Do you believe in divine appointments? 
God has divine appointments for everybody. People that God will foreordain for you to connect with that will encourage you, especially in your lowest times. Paul comes into the city. He, he knows where to find the Jews, and he knows where to find the tent makers. These two people, Aquila and Priscilla, were tent makers. Now, they had been run out of Rome because of an edict to get all the Jews out of Rome. They wanted them all out of Rome proper. Why? Because there was a, a number of mobs that were raising up a stink over this guy named Christus. Now, Christus was... was the Roman name for Christ was in this. We, we're not sure if it was really Christ or, or somebody that was just being a pretend Messiah that was in, there, in that area. But because Christianity is a sect of Judaism, and Rome saw Christianity as a sect of Judaism, not off by itself, they determined that all the, Christian, all the Jews need to get out of Rome. So Achilles and Priscilla were run out of town and where did they land? Corinth. So we got God working over here, bringing Aquila and Priscilla to Corinth. And we got Paul coming down and ending up in Corinth for a divine appointment. For people that he could connect with by trade. And you say, well, what do you mean by trade? Well, Paul by trade was a tent maker. Rabbi Judah said this, and this was a saying that they had. He who doesn't teach a son a trade is the same as one who teaches him to be a thief. It was, it was the concept that as a father you would teach your son a trade so that he wouldn't become a thief. He would have something that he was able to do. And so Paul learned to be a tent maker. And so he connected with these in the trade guild that were there. And, and as Aquila and Priscilla come out, we see that Paul was in his ministries, by vocational. In fact, you can read about it if you take notes. 1 Corinthians 4.12, 2 Thessalonians 2.9. A couple of different places. When he would go into Corinth, especially in places that he didn't want to be a burden to the early church, he didn't want to show up and say, Hi, my name's Paul, I'm a missionary, give me money. So what he would do is he would come into a city and he would start working to support himself. Now, if there were Christians already there or people there that would help support him, then great. So originally in Corinth, he's working and he's sharing the gospel. Where is he sharing the gospel? The same place that he always goes to, the synagogue. Why? Because Paul had this affinity for the Jews. He loved the Jews and he was following the pattern that Jesus had set, that the gospel was to go to the Jew, to Jerusalem, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. He was to start there. He was to, to bring this gospel message that Jesus is the promised Messiah and he would speak the language. In the synagogue, Paul would be able to go to the Old Testament writings and say, look it, this is the Jesus, the Christ, the suffering Messiah that the scriptures tell us about. In Paul's mind, if he can get the Jews to accept Jesus as Messiah, he has a group that's already established to pre-establish a church. Pretty good mission strategy. You think about it, they're already gathered together. The problem is, everywhere he went, the Jews would reject that message. They would push back. 
Can you imagine having a, a concept of how you're going to manage ministry, how you, you're going to come in and you're going to do something, and every time you try to do it, it utterly fails and you get rejected. You get told it's not going to work. Every time you try to go in and you bring in something that is positive, it's as if you get kicked in the teeth. And for Paul, literally. Would that, would that make you want to quit? Be discouraged? Maybe what I'm doing is not right. Maybe I'm not the right person for it. Because discouragement and depression can wear you down. It can get you to the place where you just want to say, bag it. I'm going to go hide under a rock. And wanting to quit. And even though Paul had a couple of people that were there, Achilla and Priscilla, that he connects with, he's still finding discouragement. What Paul doesn't know, which is huge, God brought Achilla and Priscilla, who would be two people that would become lifelong ministry partners to him. They would become a central core of his ministry and missional team. They were not saved when they met, but they came to know Jesus themselves. So when we go and we begin to minister, and we begin to share, as verses 5 through 8 tells us, we're going to get some resistance. Now, by this time in verse 5, God sends some more support. Silas and Timothy. Now, they come down. Verse 5 says, Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, if you remember on the map, from the north. And it says, Paul began to devote himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. So, He's there and he's getting resistance and he's having to work and he's bivocational and he's working, but he's also on Sabbath going there. And Paul or Silas and Timothy show up. What was Silas and Timothy bringing? Well, they were bringing support because they were part of the missions team. So they're bringing emotional support, but they're also bringing financial support within this. We read in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 7 to 9, in Paul's second letter to the church of Corinth, mind you, he's writing this letter back to the place where he is right now. So you got to, as we read this passage, in your mind think, Paul's already been there, established a church, and now he's writing this letter back to these very people. He says this to the people that he's ministering to, Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted? Because I preached the gospel of God to you without charge. I robbed other churches by taking wages from them to serve you. And when I was present with you and was in need, I was not a burden to anyone. For when the brethren came from Macedonia, Silas and Timothy, they fully supplied my need. And in everything, I kept myself from being a burden to you and will continue to do also. Why would Paul write this in the second letter to Corinth? Because the church of Corinth, by the time of his writing the letter, had turned their back on Paul. And they said, Paul, we know you founded the church, but you're not around, and we really don't care about you. We're listening to some other leaders, some other people. And Paul's writing back to them and saying, look, at, I love you guys. And I made it a point, when I was with you, not to be a burden to you. This is happening in real time in verse 5. Paul is not being a burden to the church of Corinth. 
And the, and the money was coming from Macedonia, specifically from Philippi and other believers that were in the region to finance the ministry. Why? So Paul could stop being bivocational and give himself wholly to the preaching of the Word. To give himself this opportunity to be fully dedicated to evangelism, to meet with people, to teach, to prepare. Why? Because Paul's ministry was to preach Jesus. Peter would say in his sermon in Acts 2.36, Therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made Him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Paul wanted the Jews to understand that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. He is their Savior. He looked at these people and he said, You're dying. And I've got the truth. And so he wanted to speak the Word. But notice what happened in verse 6. When they resisted and blasphemed. It's one thing to turn your back on someone who's trying to help you. It's totally something else when they start talking behind your back or to your face and telling you how worthless you are. Does Satan use that as a tool to create depression and dejection? Absolutely. And he knows how to fuel that fire to get you to quit. And so they said, we don't want to hear you. In fact, we're going to speak bad about you. We're going to try to degrade you. And again, imagine this being not a one-time action, but repetitive. As I said, it happened in Antioch, Pisidia, Lystra, Derby, Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, Athens. Everywhere that Paul would go. Did he have some successes where he went? Yes, he did. Yes, he did. Here's the hard part. When discouragement takes root... You have a hard time seeing the successes because in your mind you're seeing the failure being this big. We don't see the individual successes because in our mind it, we have these negatives that override it. And so within this, Paul was going to the Jews. It was his pattern to love on the Jews. So you've got to ask the question, Why? If someone hits you in the face, why would you go back and say, please hit me again? That doesn't make sense, does it? And he does it time and time again. Two things. One, the great commission that he was called to do. But do you remember what Paul, or as he went by the name Saul, did prior to his conversion? What was he doing to Christians? Having them arrested, put in jail, and even put to death. The blood of the believers, torture and torment, was on him. And he felt obligated. Because he was one of the Jews that was, that was a Jew above Jews that was bringing about this oppression. So Paul was motivated by heart. He didn't see it as a job. He saw it as a lifestyle and a, and a commission. Now, understand, whenever God blesses a ministry, God's good, Satan is going to bring opposition. God will bless and start you moving, and Satan is going to come 
and He's going to bring resistance. When you start doing the work of God, understand, when you are doing the work of God, you are going to incur the wrath of Satan. Just know it's going to happen. You go, well, I don't want the wrath of Satan. Fair enough. But is that a reason to quit the work of God? Who's greater? Who do you serve first? Paul would write to the same church, Corinth, in his first letter, in 1 Corinthians 16, 9, For a wide door for effective service has been opened to me, and there are many adversaries. A wide door is there, many adversaries. Preacher Charles Spurgeon once said, The devil devil never kicks a dead horse. Think about that. He never kicks a dead horse. Why? It's dead. So if you're getting opposition, know that you're doing a good work. If you're doing God's work. Jews wouldn't listen. So Paul does something that they would get. And, And he does it not in a mean way, but he does something that these Jews who understood Scripture would get. He takes off his cloak and he shakes the dust off. And you say, well, what does that mean? Well, it dates back to what happened in Nehemiah 5.13 where it says this, And I also shook off the dust, or shook out from my garment and said, Thus may the Lord God shake out every man from his house and from his possessions who does not fulfill this promise. And even thus may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen, and they praised the Lord. And then the people did according to the promise. In other words, and Nehemiah said, look, we're going this way. And if you don't like it, then pack sand. Be done. Go away. Creating the separation. Jesus would say in Matthew 10, verses 14 to 15, Whoever does not receive you, nor heed your words, as you go out from the house of that city, shake the dust off your feet. Truly I say to you, it would be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in that day of judgment than for that city. Is there a point in time when you've done everything you could to try to help somebody, to encourage them to speak truth, and through their resistance and their rejection, they just are not going to accept you? Sure. At that point, then you say, okay, you obviously are rejecting this. It's on you. The rest is on you. And so what Paul does is he says, look, at, I'm, I'm not walking away from the ministry, but I'm walking away from you. Your blood be on your own head. Meaning you are responsible for your own faith within this. You cannot force somebody into the kingdom. But you better make sure that you've done everything you could to share that gospel and even giving to them the knowledge of there's a potential judgment if you reject this message. We need to preach both sides of the gospel. We need to preach grace and we also need to preach judgment within this. So what Paul does is he shakes the dust off here of the synagogue and the rest of the time Paul will spend in Corinth preaching to the Gentiles. Does Paul give up on the Jews wholeheartedly? Nope. Just in Corinth. Because as he moves forward, what will he do? He'll go to the synagogue again. But he knows the limitations that are there in Corinth. Instead of hitting his head against a wall with the Jews in Corinth, he refocuses and goes where he is most effective. 
And that's what God calls us to do. Wherever a door gets shut, look for the open door. Understand you're going to have resistance, but look for the open door and look for the encouragement that God is going to give you within this. So Paul leaves the synagogue and he goes out of the synagogue and guess who he meets? A guy by the name of Titus Justice. Titus Justice was a Gentile God-fearer, which meant he had heard Paul and he heard the message. Titus Justice accepts the Lord. Oh, and by the way, Titus Justice's house is right next to the synagogue. Where is Paul set up shop to be able to preach the gospel and start a home church? Right next to the synagogue. Could you imagine all that's going on as these people that were rejecting the gospel are walking by Titus's house going, what's going on there? Well, that's all the Christians. That's Paul who's teaching. The same Paul you kicked out of your building, he's right next door. Being able to share that gospel where God shuts one door and says, look it on them. Look for that open door. The Jews had rejected. And this Titus Justice comes in. Well, who's this Titus Justice? We know him in Romans chapter 16, 23 as Gaius. And quite possibly the same Gaius in, in 1 Corinthians 1, 14. He becomes a believer. And he offers up his home. And within this. But still, there's a struggle. Was I effective? Was I effective? Am I really giving up? And then God gives them some more encouragement. You know what the encouragement was? Crispus, who was the synagogue leader, comes to faith and his whole household and he is baptized. Okay, so he didn't have a great ministry inside the synagogue, but did he have individuals Leaders with, of the synagogue that come to faith. Yes. He does. And so you look for the wins. But again, Paul's struggling. He gets Achille and Priscilla. He gets Silas and Timothy. He gets the financial resources. He gets a new place to be able to do ministry. He gets the synagogue leader, but he's still struggling. So God goes over and above and gives him a word. Notice what happens in verse 9. It says this, And the Lord said to Paul in the night vision, Do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you. No man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. Paul gets a word. Paul was supposed to speak the word of encouragement. But how do you speak the word of encouragement if you're discouraged? Because you receive encouragement from God. And it says that he heard this voice in this night vision. Who was the voice? Jesus. Did Paul know the voice of Jesus? Absolutely. Same voice he heard on the road of Damascus. The same voice that he heard in the teaching that he would receive from him. Jesus came to him. Great leaders have all experienced discouragement from time to time. Moses, Joshua, Jeremiah, Elijah, Isaiah. God will bring encouragement through angels, through signs, through prophecies, through people, through His Word. 
Look for those voices of encouragement. Look for those still small voices that are there. Paul knew the voice of Jesus and what does he hear? Do not fear. In Greek, it's a double negative. No, not fear. It's an imperative, which means it's a command, which implies the fact that Paul was in fear. The fear that you're fearing right now, stop it. It's that strong. Stop it. Why? Because I am with you. Go on speaking. Don't be silent. Don't be afraid. Three things. He gives them assurance. Why should I not do this? Because I'm with you. And no man will attack or harm you. The implication is in this city. For this period of time, I'm going to set a hedge of protection around you. Why? Here's your purpose. I have many people in this city yet to be saved. That means you need to stay there and keep speaking the truth. Don't quit. What did Paul done? Every time he'd received opposition, he had run because of fear of his life. They were running him out of town. And this is the first time where he says, no, you're not going anywhere. It's not working out the way you thought. According to your plan, pivot it. You're going to the Gentiles. You're going to stay. Why? Because I have many people that have yet to be saved, and they can't be saved until you stay there long enough to share the gospel with them to be saved. Paul would spend a year and a half in Corinth. It's the second longest place he'll spend in the mission field, short of Ephesus. Ephesus, he would spend two to three years sharing the gospel. You're not going anywhere this time. You're staying put. Hold fast. And speak the word. Don't be afraid. God is in control of the environment. God's in control. But that's the encouragement you need. That's what we need to hear. We need to not be afraid. Because where God directs you and directs your ministry and mission, do it. Do it the way that God would have you to do it. God's got a plan for you, and that plan is being unveiled. And when you are walking in the will of God, quitting is always coming up short. Do not quit. When God has directed you, and you'll watch God's word be faithful. Verses 12 to 17, God is faithful, and he'll experience this. Paul would spend a year and a half there over time. And it's amazing how God already knows the persecution that Paul's going to experience. He's going to get pulled in front of a court again. Paul spent a lot of time in front of legal people. And you look at verses 12 and 13, and it says, But while Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him before the judgment seat. Gallio was, was well known in history. He was the brother of philosopher Seneca, who was a tutor to Nero. He was made proconsul of Achaia, which was the southern region of Greece. He was in charge of that. He was born in Spain, sent to Rome to be trained under Tiberius. And so he was sent to this area to rule. What's interesting is that the Jews, because they couldn't get any traction to stop the ministry of Paul, 
they took something that was a religious debate and made it into a political argument. Now, I know people don't do that today. But they did. There's nothing new under the sun. So they took something that should have been a religious, and it was really just a religious resistance. And they said, no, we're going to make it a legal aspect, and then we're going to, we're going to lie about it and say, this man is teaching people to break the law against Caesar. Okay, kind of. Caesar wanted to be worshipped as God. Well, Paul is teaching that there is only one God, Jesus. And he's God above all gods. In the Roman world, it was against the law for a cult to proselytize Romans. But was, were they a cult? No, they weren't a cult because Rome accepted the Jewish faith as a legitimate faith. And so Christianity was just a sect of Judaism. So Galileo is now going to have to determine, do I judge against the Jews an accepted religion against this Paul or not? So now we have a dilemma. I love the fact that verse 14 tells us that we don't always have to speak up. It says, but when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio spoke to the Jews. Paul's getting ready to defend himself, as was his custom. Thinks, i got to defend myself. Guess what? You don't always have to defend yourself. Paul's like, oh! and Gallio goes, let me talk to you. And he overrides Paul. Paul sits back and says, what's going to happen? Gallio goes, look it. If this was a real legitimate issue, if it was a real violation of law, in other words, if there is a second class condition, which means if it was a violation of the law and it is not, then I would listen to you. But because it is about names and, and words, I'm not going to listen. Now, Gallio spoke. Who moved Gallio to speak? God. Why? Because the heart of the king is in the hands of God. And God said to Paul, don't worry, I've got you. And when Paul got up to defend himself, God said to Gallio, you speak. Overrides him. Gallio looks at these guys and says, I'm not going to listen to what you have to say. The tension is if Gallio was to rule against Christianity, then all Christianity would become illegal in the Roman Empire. Nero would do that about 10 to 12 years later. But for now, it was God's intention that Christianity would not be illegal. Paul didn't need to speak because God said, I'm with you and no man will attack you or harm you in this city. Gallio says, I'm done with you guys. Get out of my sight. This all happened in front of the Bema seat, which is this judgment seat. It was all a purple marble that was over a large courtyard. And can you imagine the crowd that is there? And they think, yeah, we got him. And Gallio says, no. 
It's about words and names. You go. The mob gets upset. And who do they grab? Do they grab Paul to beat him up? No. They grab Sothenes, the, re- the uh, synagogue ruler, and they beat him in front of the proconsul. And Paul was protected. And I feel, I feel bad for Sothenes. Poor guy. But within this, we can see God's hand upon Paul. And we can see what happens when Satan rages against the work of God. But who is greater? God or Satan? God is. Is God faithful to His Word? Absolutely. Therefore, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid, but speak up. Discouragement and depression is going to wear you down. But in those low times, look, look for the encouragement. Be quiet and watch. Don't quit. Don't quit. God will provide what you need, who you need, when you need it. And we can expect that there's going to be resistance, but we need to persevere. God's going to empower you to complete the work. And then when you're standing face to face with that opposition, be at rest and know that God's got it. Just be at rest. God is faithful to His promise. Don't let fear drive you from fulfilling your calling, whatever that calling is. Let's pray. God, we thank You. We thank You for all that You've given us. Lord, we know that this relationship that we have with You is amazing. Founded on the blood of Jesus, based on Your love, God, we thank You for all that You've given to us. Lord, we know that apart from Your grace and Your mercy, we would be dead in our sins. But through You, Lord Jesus, You've made us alive. What moved Paul to share the Gospel so boldly? Because he had met his risen Savior. What gave him the the, the message to keep going on? Because he knew that if he could share Jesus, people would be saved. They would come to faith. That they were dead in their sin, but the only hope for life is through putting their faith and trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior and having those sins forgiven. That's the message of the Gospel. And it's confirmed at the cross that, Lord Jesus, You died and paid the penalty for our sins so that we might receive that forgiveness and have new life. This morning, consider where you're at. Do you know Jesus? Do you know that your sins are forgiven? If not, you can know. Simply praying and having a conversation with God who wants to hear from you. The problem with the Jews is they never acknowledge God as the one who would forgive them of their sins. But if you acknowledge God and say, God, please forgive me of my sin. It's what separates me from you. And Jesus, I believe you died on the cross for my sins and rose again to give new life. I want that new life. 
Will you fill me with your Spirit? Forgive me of my sin and make me born again. Have that conversation with God in your own words. God, may that happen today. Christ, may you be magnified in our lives. That when people see us, may they see you, Lord Jesus. In those times that Satan wants to take us off the rails and discourage us, may we realize that we've already won and continue on and not give up. As we go out into the world today, there are many yet to be saved. And it is our role to go out and to bring that message. So Lord, as we do that, as we go out to the world today, may we honor You in everything. May people see Jesus. And may our lives make You smile. We thank You and we praise You in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Have a blessed week. Thanks for joining us in the study of God's Word with Pastor Kerry Wacker. We'd love to have you join us in person for worship each Sunday morning at 9 a.m. or 1045 a.m. We also meet Wednesday nights at 6.30 p.m. Warren Community Fellowship is located at 56523 Columbia River Highway in Warren, Oregon, between Scappoose and St. Helens. For more information about Warren Community Fellowship or about WCF Ministries, call us at 503-397-4387. And don't forget to like us on Facebook.